All right, welcome to another great episode of Clyde and Clear. This time, my guest is James Glover, CEO of Coherent Path. Welcome, James. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Sony. Uh, recent customer of ours, um, but you know we've gotten to know each other, and I think work together as two companies pretty pretty quickly. So I'm I'm very excited to be able to bring you on and have uh, have you tell your story and tell our story together. Um, you've been doing this for a long time. I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, started in 2012. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a while. Yeah. What gave you your idea to to do this? Um, where did you where did you see like the market fit, and and what led you to to this passion around marketing, email marketing, and communications? Yeah, great question. Um, I was working with my co-founder. He's a math professor out of uh, Dartmouth College, and we're actually working on a couple of longer running uh, fraud problems. So uh, one of them is instead of like I steal Tony's credit card and run to the wrong liquor store, uh, you know, there was a company called Fair Isaac that would uh you know, flag an alert and say, that's not what we guessed Tony would do next. Um, but what happened as people started to acquire stolen identities, they needed a way to monetize them. So we were working with JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and folks like that. Uh, and what we would see is that a customer would apply for a credit card, try to look like a normal person for six to nine months, and then run the card up to the limit and, and disappear. And so the kind of analytics that you need to fight that is more like trying to model a customer through time in the data uh, and then try to use that to spot the counterfeits. We actually also worked for the U.S. government. They gave us all soldiers, medical and prescription data, and said, find the ones that are becoming addicted to prescription drugs. So it's a journey, but a journey with an inflection point that you're trying to model through time. So I'm not trying to guess what you would do next. I'm trying to guess uh, whether or not you're on a journey towards a bad place. And so we did that for a while, and then we sold that business to Fidelity Information Services. And we said, you know, who else cares about the journeys that their customers are on? And we felt like in the world of retail, the analytics there was very oriented towards the kind of next step, uh, guessing what, what Tony would do next, as opposed to thinking about the customer journey through time. So uh, we kind of hit on that as a, as a great way to leverage our experience and to, and to move into a new space. So that's kind of the, the history side of it. 2012, that, I mean, that was early days of, I would say, big data and sophisticated data analytics, ML, a little bit of AI, I assume, in terms of being able to build the predictive models. Um, how, was that sort of part of the part of your co-founder's sort of math thesis and work that he was doing that he was able to figure that out so early? Well, what, what, what he discovered is that you could put a geometry on a product and transactional space. And then, you know, our customers, LL Bean, Gap, et cetera. Uh, then you put the customer into the geometry and you see the dynamics of how they're moving through it. Uh, and then you try to kind of lead them on a journey towards becoming the highest uh, value version of themselves. Uh, we often use the example of E.T. When E.T. was in the forest, you know, they Elliot put down a stream of Reese's pieces, you know, try to get them back to, to Elliot's house there. Uh, and so Greg kind of, it's his, that's his branch of math. And so he published some academic work around putting hyperbolic geometries on, on transactional spaces. And then, um, you know, we, we, so that was kind of the, the foundational work that we use for a patent. Uh, and then, yeah, we needed to figure out how to, how do you put that into the real world uh, in a big data environment? Wow. So there's a patent behind this. 
Yeah, influencing customer journeys through product and transactional spaces. So uh, I, love, I love how you describe it as a journey because I think so much of the world still tends to operate in the transactional um, mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. But I think what you're alluding to, and this is probably where you found the the what the you know product market fit or whatever the current uh, popular vernacular is, is that it's about building a relationship with that potential customer or existing customer over time, right? Is that the absolutely primary yeah. thesis? Yeah, yeah. We kind of sometimes also use the analogy of like a like a like we'd be like a nutritionist or or a dietitian or something like that, you know. So to emphasize the fact that we we want to think about that relationship through time and we want to create a a meal plan for Tony over the next you know couple of years that's going to have him grow up to be big and strong, you know. So retailers are sort of notoriously oriented around tomorrow. Uh, you know, it's a difficult time for a lot of retailers. And so, um, you know, the easiest solution is the biggest possible discount, which will make the cash register ring for today, Um, you know, as opposed to kind of thinking about that relationship with the customer through time and, you know, exposing them to as many categories as possible. And we often use the example of a personal shopper. You know, if you were to walk into Bloomingdale's and, you know, there's James, your personal shopper, you wouldn't expect them to say, you know, do you want to buy some more of uh, whatever, or, hey, can I induce you to shop with some huge discount kind of thing? You know, they would be uh, optimized around, you know, trying to show you more and more of the catalog. Winning the lowest cost game is is very, very hard. Um, Almost nobody can do that, unless you're Walmart or somebody, right? You can't really do that sustainably. So uh, absolutely, um, the value game is where brands and companies can differentiate themselves. And I think what a lot of retailers don't realize is that people are willing to pay maybe more than they think based on the experience, right? Yeah. We, we, we did a study once with one of the big retailers where we found that 70% of their customers were no more likely to respond to a discount than to a content-based uh, offer. And so 70% of the time when they were offering a discount, they were doing it without needing to, uh, where they could have motivated that customer by exposure to a new part of the catalog. That, is so much, that sounds like so much money. If you're just yes. discounting <laughs> needlessly 70% of the time, that sounds yeah. like a lot yeah. of margin leaving the PNL for no good reason. Yeah, well, it's knowing which 70%, right, uh, is the one that you didn't need to do, right? So that's the challenging part. So has your business experienced um, kind of a different level of interest because of the last couple of years? Uh, you mean like COVID specifically? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, we've more than tripled in size over the last 12 months. Um, it's been amazing. Uh, and I would say that a big part of that, like, you know, we have some great brands like Bloomingdale's, you know, and Bloomingdale's for 15 years tried to become more of a dot com. And then COVID came and they became a dot com overnight and like it was amazing to see the transformation and like it's just they just did a great job at responding to the circumstances and 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 driving the relationships uh through through the internet as opposed to in person and you know still leveraging the stores for pickup and things like that but uh it just forced a massive transition uh 
a massive transition that, you know, would have taken them 10 years otherwise. And so, um, you know, we kind of rose with the tide of those great uh, retailers, L Bean, Gap, et cetera. That, I mean, we, we uh, see it from our side yeah. as well, like, and not just with retail, but other types of businesses who have had this, you know, if, if you're a silver lining type of person, you see, you look at it as urgency and opportunity to transform in a way that maybe you thought you had much longer to figure out. And, uh, but there's been like a great divide, I think of companies, whether it's retail, food service, other things where they've uh, adapted very quickly to this new paradigm versus those that, um, kind of resisted or couldn't move quickly enough. We've seen like this complete, uh, division of, I think, good fortune versus the risk of, you know, an existential risk. Yeah, totally. And, and, and what we've seen is that it's given power to the folks in the marketing org and the folks, you know, there were turf wars that were being, you know, adjudicated uh, for over the last 10 years that where all of a sudden all the power shifted to, uh, you know, a different part of the organization. And I think that's a big part of what let them uh, move quickly. So, yeah. What's great about technologies like yours, I think, is that, and I think just new modalities of marketing or communication or service delivery. You mentioned, you know, pickup, curbside, you know, at Bloomingdale's. Uh, I don't know. By the way, I don't know how you knew I shopped at Bloomingdale's, but this is from. <laughs> but there you go. Um, uh, your customer. I hope you're in the test room, not the control. But I think I think those uh, the new capabilities, the muscle memory that's being created. Like my thesis is. That's not going away. I feel like that's just going to be uh, another modality that they'll continue to use because customers will continue to desire, right? They'll, they'll want to oh, sure. maintain mm -hmm. digital experiences. They'll want to maintain curbside pickup mm -hmm. for a big, you know, big population. Others will still want to, as soon as they can go back to the store, they'll want to go back to the store before a lot of people who thought they could never shop this way or interact this way or consume this way are like, actually... This is pretty convenient. I'm going to yeah. keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. And it goes down to that. It's the basic strength of the value proposition, right? And so the store is good for some kinds of discovery and, you know, um, but, but online is convenient and great for other use cases. And so I think for sure these, uh, you know, big retailers have got good at leveraging the, their competitive advantage, what they do have over Amazon, you know, and the things that Amazon can't do, uh, and so that kind of omnivores perspective has been uh, great for them. And so they've all of a sudden beefed up their online presence, but now they've got both. And so they can they can really actually compete, which is great to see. Speaking of the market, not waiting for anyone. I mean, the biggest irony ever as you walk around is, uh, uh, I don't know, a borders that's no longer there. That's been replaced by a physical Amazon store. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like, what? but to your point, I think even Amazon realizes that there's this other brick and mortar advantage that, you know, these other retailers have, but if they wait too long, like Amazon is just going to have both. So it's like, they have to use that, you know, the distribution, uh, the customer base, they have all these advantages that if they execute well on the digital side, I think it'll make them thrive. And there's other brands who've done really well, obviously. Um, I think, you know, Best Buy and the Home Depots and the Lowe's and like they've, a lot of these companies have figured it out, but the ones who have not, it's, it's, it's been really tough for Same thing for like food service, restaurants. Some restaurants did exceptionally well 
during the um, pandemic period because they figured out a different modality of driving relationships and servicing their customers. Um, so, I mean, talk about, we all, you know, I think what you've seen is uh, sort of a subsection of uh, what we've seen, which is this acceleration of becoming digital, um, which is a great opportunity, I think. If mm-hmm. And any, once they do that, once yeah. they kind of sort out the distribution, these are just channels to the customer. And it goes back to what they're actually good at, which is making great products and making, you know, marketing that motivates people to explore those great products. You know what I mean? Like they've always been good at making products and they've always been good at marketing creative. And so if those become the differentiators, if it's no longer, I have all the features of Amazon, you know, I have free shipping, I have, you know, in-store pickup or, you know, maybe some features that Amazon doesn't have, but, but it's then it's not going to be about that. It's going to be about the products and their core marketing abilities, which is what they have been good at historically. So, um, so that's good. So going back to the technology and the company a little bit. So you've chosen primarily like email is the medium by which you're building these relationships. So how does it actually work? Think of it this way. Like, you know, I don't know how many times you shopped at Bloomingdale's in the last year, but I'm going to go with something like two to four times, you know, and then think about how many times you visited the store or their website, maybe 10 times in total. How many emails did they send you? 200 right so if you think uh, yeah, about the primary right. mechanism rewards, you know i get this email for that <laughs> or this email for that exactly. yeah so so it is the primary vehicle that they use to communicate to their customer and if you're a machine learning or an artificial intelligence solution like we are email is the perfect place to be because it's where the conversation is happening with the customer uh and and they produce they have a ton of them they have millions and millions of customers they produce a lot of creative and so the machine has a lot of options to choose from and it knows it's going to have you know 30 bullets over the next month and so it can construct that diet that we talked about uh in terms of um you know trying to make the best customer and is it is it able to change that uh, formula, the plan in flight based on mm-hmm. like my behavior? Yeah, remember, so we talked a little bit about that geometry, like ET in the forest. And so the geometry is relatively stable, uh, but for each and every customer, their place in the geometry is constantly moving. And so, you know, we we update that every single time we have an opportunity to talk to them. Uh, and then we also build an ideal version of that customer for every single customer. Uh, and we try to put, you know, Reese's Pieces or content in front of them to try to lead them to that ideal version of themselves. And so that dynamic is changing every single time we have a chance to uh, send an email or to communicate to that customer. And so, yeah, you're talking about uh, a billion and a half emails a week, um, you know, where, uh, which are each and every one of them being personalized for the the recipient. Mm, That's powerful. And I think the other thing that's potentially helped you is, um, has I think brought email lists back to the forefront of importance in general is what what Apple did with iOS with the do not track like it's actually completely changed the marketing paradigm and especially D2C where you know the social platforms like you just couldn't deliver ads in uh, as an effective way anymore right 
Yeah, cost of acquisition goes up or becomes impossible in some instances. And folks like us who use only zero party or first party data, uh, you know, which is still, you know, totally valid. Um, yeah, it's it's a good time to be alive for those of us who are using first party data. And and we don't we have none of the uh, duress that uh, folks that were focused on Facebook ads or um, yeah. That, that was a big change. That was a huge change. And and I'm and I've heard from many people, you know, email first party is just the importance of that has, you know, skyrocketed. Skyrocketing. So, hey, yeah. you know, it's good it's better to be lucky than good, but it's good to, it's best to be both. <laughs> it's best to be both. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me about like how the tech stack for you has changed. I mean, twenty twelve, you're dealing with a completely different tech stack that's available now, which is, by the way, the, like the beauty of uh, your story and the customers we serve in general, either customers like you who provide software to other types of customers we have or them directly is you're pretty much limited by your imagination today in terms of what you're able to do. But so, but you didn't start in the current, you know, uh, like, like embarrassment of riches of how much technology is available in this super advanced public cloud space but tell me about your your journey like last 10 years of your tech stack how do you how do you figure this out in 2012 and how does that evolve yeah i'd say there were two phases you know the first phase where we started out on uh amazon we sort of thought about as our enemy on some level because we're trying to help these big retailers in their war against amazon and then the second phase when we moved to google um and and maybe in the first phase you were never like on one like you were always when, day one. Well, I, historically in my career is, you know, I have been on premise. And yeah, yeah. one but of the things not that in the last decade, yeah, that not in the last decade, what we love though, moving from on-prem, which is what we were with the fraud solution and that solution for the federal government, the difference between doing things on-prem and doing things in the cloud, I would say like the single biggest difference is uh, you can build your business around letting people try the solution for free, right? And if you think about that has two massive implications, right? One is that uh, they know it works for them. You get better customers, you know, who actually are you're going to add value to because they've been able to make sure that there's good fit between what you do and what they do. So that that's huge. Um, but the second thing is when customers are trying it, you're, you're always testing the value, right? And so it makes the whole company very oriented around that A-B test that we do for the customer. And figuring out, okay, how are we going to make this work better? How are we going to make this work better? So every day, your mindset is around how do you improve the solution? And you're very focused on that in a way that in the when you were shipping software, you know, and you had a huge enterprise process for the solution, like you had some vague target of what you were trying to build together, but it was super hard to stay focused on the value. Whereas when everything is, you know, uh, built around a trial that, uh, you know, is going to going to do an A-B test where I know to the dollar how much money I made Bloomingdale's yesterday, you know, so that changes the whole culture of the company uh, to be oriented around, you know, one removing as much friction from the sales process as possible by letting people try it for free. But then secondarily, letting people, uh, you know, everyone in the company focus on the value that you're providing. And so you just keep getting uh, better and better uh, from that perspective. So I would say like from, you know, the 
my Cro-Magnon, you know, previous experiences to living in the cloud world, I would say that is the, uh, been a huge difference, you know, um, which yeah, has, has meant a lot for the business. Yeah. And then look, I don't blame you for starting on Amazon in 2012. I think, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Google wasn't quite there yet. It's pretty common in the, I would say the more mature digital companies that we serve. Um, I want to talk about that journey then to GCP. What, and what was a, a, a inflection point? How much, you know, you, you kind of alluded to the, you know, well, your customers are retailers issue. But I want to hear about that and, and actually the technology as well. Like, what did you discover in the process of switching? Yeah, maybe maybe two two big things. One was um, that we had, when we started out, we were rolling our own on a lot of our Spark and infrastructure. And, and I'm not the most technical guy in the world. But um, what happened is as we got farther and farther along, the world passed us. Right. In terms of what we could capably do as a 30 person company at the time, you know, and as we were kind of rolling our own infrastructure, because none of it existed in 2012, you know, we were we were going slower or we were watching the world go faster and faster. And we were sitting there pretty enviously saying, huh, this kind of sucks. And so we when we moved to Google, uh, we basically used a ton more off the shelf components that uh, that the world had developed, um, you know, that just weren't around when we started. And that was an investment in the beginning, but it's enabled us to go so much faster. Uh, and so that was a huge part of it, the kind of ability to take advantage of the fact that the world was working, you know, for us in some level. Uh, so that was huge. And then the market pressure, like our customers, what, what they tolerated in 2012 they wanted to contractually prohibit by 2018 or something like that. You know what I mean? Like where they were like, okay, we like your stuff, but we don't like it enough to tolerate you uh, giving some of that money to our worst enemy, basically. And so it became, uh, you know, a part of, um, yeah, what the customers wanted to put pressure on. And so, you know, between the desire to go way faster by not rolling our own on a lot of these things and the desire to, you know, truly be a good partner to our customers, you know, and hear them when they say, like, you know, this really bothers us. Um, you know, I think those two things combine to, to make the move uh, make a ton of sense for us. Yeah, the second part is... Um... We're not going to compete with the market, with our customers, and we're not going to compete with the software community. We don't want to be in everyone's business. We want to be the most desirable building blocks for every other software company. So I think that's hopefully what you've discovered. The other part I'll say, and I applaud you for this, you know, when we're, when we're doing these takeouts or, or migrations uh, from, 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 from any platform, we really do encourage like the thoughtfulness around the opportunity to re-architect. We don't want to do, I mean, we, sometimes you have to and do them in phases, which is fine, but there's nothing inherently wrong with sort of a migrate then re-architect. But if you're able to do it as you're moving, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear like, we could do three releases a year. Now we're doing 30 a month, you know, like that kind of capability. And we're using more platform services as opposed to compute and storage services, which is like cheaper and scales better and, and all that stuff. So 
hopefully you're able to do even more as far as sort of feature and functionality development on your own platform over time by virtue of being on GCP. That's what we hope. Well, if you think about when we started out, we were very interested in controlling the contents of the message, you know, but as we, as the solution is solidified, now we're, by the time Bloomingdale's lets me decide the contents of every email that I'm sending you, they're in a good position to let me say what time of day I should send it to you. How many emails? Why does everybody get, you know, why do they divide it into just a small number of buckets, you know, small, medium, and large, you know, in terms of the amount of content that you give? And then ultimately, you know, that those promotions, you know, how much of that are they willing to turn over to a machine? And, the, and if we do a great job on the contents and what time of day and how much email, then we're in a great position to, uh, to help them with that, you know, mother of all problems, which is the discounting problem. So, yeah, I mean, in that, like having a much more flexible infrastructure where we can, um, you know, continue to build models and solutions and, yeah, and have Greg uh, work in his sandbox has been great. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're able to uh, share your thoughts on the future, which is, I'm sure, as a CEO, you think about the future uh, quite often, as I do, um, what, what, what can you predict about the future of retail and the future of coherent path. Yeah. I mean, for, for the future of retail, if you think about, like, I think of the core value proposition of a retailer being understanding their customer, right? And so that I could pick a random new product and you could tell me which of your customers that would appeal to, right? And so uh, part of building a relationship with the customer is is providing that role of curating the universe of products down to the ones that Tony will be interested in. Otherwise, they're going to get disintermediated by in, in, by companies that are trying to go direct to consumer, right? And so if they can maintain that value proposition, that is a valuable thing. You're busy, you know what I mean? Someone who can curate the universe down to the stuff that you're interested in. That's the core value proposition of the retailer. You know, that and marketing from my perspective, you know, the ability to put that product into a context that can help you visualize why it might be great for you, which is kind of the essence of the marketing. And so I think retailers that are that are good at that and understand that that's their core differentiation and are making the investments in order to continue to get better and better, uh, and especially to stand for a part of the market. Like I love L.L. Bean, you know, their BN outsider bean, you know, they stand for something, right? We want to be about outdoor family enthusiasm. And so we're going to get great at picking products and bringing them to people who care about about outdoor family enthusiasm, you know, and so that's a retailer that stands for something and will be successful. So I see that as kind of the that's that's where retail's going, and and that you will be under great pressure if your value proposition is providing discounts, you know, that say today only seventy percent off. That's not as strong a value proposition, right? So I would say that's 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 on the future of retail, on the future of coherent path. We want to tuck in behind that value proposition, obviously, right? And we want to be the experts. Let them be great at making products. Let them be great at building marketing materials and let us help them with the data science that's required to, at scale, 
you know, to do it for 5 million customers individually for each and every one of them help to decide, okay, this is the right product to put in front of that customer at the right time in the right channel in the right context, you know, with the, with the whole message being built out by a machine. And so that's a special kind of machine that you have to turn that, you know, you want the marketer to turn over his customer to that kind of a machine. We think that's pretty valuable. And so we've got, you know, the top of the pyramid in terms of TJ Maxx, Bloomingdale's, L.L. Bean, The Gap, Banana Republic, et cetera. So we've got the best retailers that are out there now Amazing. and now we need to kind of distribute it to the rest of the market you know uh and so that's the future for us is 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 continuing to automate as much of that task and and to bring it to the rest of the market it feels like you've made a lot of progress in the technology and the, and the market has moved quite a bit but it also feels like it's super early days i'm super excited that you've bet on uh gcp and google cloud and and sada to uh to be your partner because Ideally, we'll be there for the journey. You know, you'll, yeah. you'll have us to depend on as your needs uh, shift and change. And uh, please continue to uh, tap us on the shoulder when you're um, thinking about doing something new. Uh, our job is to make sure that we're always ahead of what technology is going to be released by Google that may be transformational in nature and what our customers can use. So uh, I'm really excited for you. I, I love uh the way you articulated uh, the opportunity in retail and the evolution of retail, I haven't quite heard it put this way before. So I learned quite a bit, James. So thank you so much. And uh, I think the audience is going to enjoy this quite a bit. Thank you. We really appreciate the partnership and, and the opportunity to kind of share some thoughts with each other. Thanks, Thanks a lot. So much. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.